I have um, truly loved preaching through the book of Deuteronomy. I love showing all the connections to the New Testament and the coming of Christ. I think Deuteronomy is one of the most beautiful books in the Bible, and uh, I'm really sad. I'm not going to finish the sermon series with you, but um, I have two sermons left, and uh, I want you to know how grateful I am. I remember when I was a, a young man, how much I wanted to teach the Bible, and I've had 12 wonderful years of doing that with you. And it's been a gift. And uh, it's been the most joyful years of my life. And uh, I've been thinking about what to preach these last two times. And I remember a verse that Christina once gave me. I uh, met Christina when I was in college. We were doing this uh, evangelism ministry together. And uh, I had never met anyone who was so passionate about the things of God. And I was so smitten, (laughs) and I was so attracted to her, and uh, we started to date. And, you know, when you date uh, someone, you exchange gifts. And uh, I had wanted to be a missionary to North Africa, because there were so few Christians there. I wanted to do frontier missions. And um, on my birthday, Christina gave me, she... um, she created this really beautiful poster of a map of North Africa. And on the map, she wrote one verse. The verse was Romans 15, verse 20, in which Paul writes, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. And uh, I put that poster by my bed, and uh, late at night I would look up at it, and stare at the verse. And um, I never did make it to North Africa, but that verse went right into me. And um, it is the passion of my life, or to use Paul's language, it is the ambition of my life to preach the gospel of Christ. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And so for these last two sermons, I would like to preach... Simple gospel sermons. I want to preach about sin. I want to preach about Christ. I want to preach about salvation. And in the Bible, um, there are these wonderful little gospel summaries where in just a few verses, you have just the whole gospel summarized. And one of them is Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Just three verses. And I really love this one. Because there's all there's this density of imagery, and uh, there's so much here. We're actually not going to look at everything, but it's so beautiful. So let me read it to you. This is Colossians chapter two, thirteen through fifteen. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of God. I have three points. 
Number one, um, we're going to look at the fact that we're dead in our sins. Number two, we're going to see that the record has been canceled. And then number three, we're going to see the power has been defeated. So we're going to look at the problem. We're dead in our sins. We're going to look at the first part of the solution. The record is canceled. And then we're going to look at the second part of the solution, which is the power has been defeated. So let's begin. We are dead in our sins. The Bible says that our greatest and our deepest problem is that we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our sins. That is the most fundamental problem of the human race. And so let's take a look at this uh, more deeply in the text. And I want you to notice that it doesn't actually use the word sin in Colossians. But Paul uses another word, trespass, which is the Greek word uh, paraptoma. Paraptoma means to wrongfully cross a boundary line. Right? Um, this other word is, uh, is the word trespass. And uh, it means um, to enter where it is forbidden. So, um, for example, it means to uh, enter into someone's property um, when there's a no trespassing sign. That's what the Greek word um, parptuma, trespass, means. And it's getting at this idea that God's laws are boundary lines that we must not cross. And a lot of Christians really dislike this idea, this concept of sin. Because it seems like these lines are arbitrary lines that keep us from exploring the world and discovering the world, right? And these lines sort of confine us and constrain us to this very small space. I, uh, I remember when I was a kid, every time I saw a no trespassing sign, I would want to climb over the fence. Because my thought was, what are you hiding in there? Like, what don't you want me to see? Like, what's the harm if I look around? I want you to understand that God's laws, they are lines. But they're not arbitrary lines. They're not there to confine you, but to protect you. And if you keep them, it will lead to human flourishing and joy. In the 1990s, um, there was a movie that came out, and um, it was rather risque, at least for the standards of the time. It was this huge uh, cultural phenomenon. Everyone was talking about it. Uh, the movie came out when I was in high school. It was rated R, and so I did not, uh, I was not able to see it. But I did go see it when I was in college. And when I tell you the title of the movie, you will immediately recognize it if you are in your 40s. It's the movie Indecent Proposal, right? Indecent Proposal. I am not recommending this movie, okay? But I do think the story is rather instructive. So here's the story. There is um, a married couple played by um, Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore. And they are architects, and they are building their dream house. This is a house that they've been designing and planning all of their life. But in the middle of the project, the money runs out. And the project is stalled, and um, it's about to be foreclosed, and the thought that the banks would um, seize the property, it's just unbearable to them. 
And so in a moment of desperation, they come up with a plan. And the plan is that they're going to take all the remaining savings that they have, and they're going to drive to Las Vegas, and they're going to gamble it until they win the money that they need to finish the house. And at first, things seem to go well. They're winning a lot of money. But as you can imagine, what ends up happening, what inevitably happens, I suppose, is they lose all the money. They lose everything. That night, they, uh, they happen to meet this billionaire, played by Robert Redford, who is quite taken by the wife. He listens to their problem and he makes a proposal. He says, I will give you $1 million for one night with your wife. $1 million. This was before inflation. So in the 1990s, it was an enormous sum of money. And that was the proposal. And this is where the title of the movie comes from. Indecent Proposal. And the husband is outraged by this. He's like, how dare you? Who do you think we are to hell with you and your money? But later that night, the couple starts to think. And they, would, and they said, you know, that money would solve all of our problems. And yes, it is adultery, but it's just one night. What's the harm? We would be crossing this line once, and then we'll never think of it again. We'll never mention it again. And so the next day, they agree. And then what happens in the rest of the movie is that everything becomes unraveled. Because of that single trespass, it plants the seed, a seed of jealousy and hurt and anger and blame. And then this cascade of events where um, it destroys their relationship. It, it ends their marriage. They end up getting a divorce. And everything falls apart because they cross that line. The Bible says that these lines that you're not supposed to cross, and we're not just talking about the no adultery line, but all of the lines in the Bible, these are not arbitrary lines. These lines reflect the fundamental nature of reality. And they reflect God's good and holy nature. And therefore, when you transgress them, when you violate them and break them, you will reap destruction and death. This is why the Bible says that we are dead in our sins. We are dead. Now what does the Bible mean by this? The Bible is talking about the severity of our condition. Because if the Bible said you are injured by your sins, if the Bible said you are very sick because of your sins, well then there is some chance of recovery. You can heal after an injury. You can get well after you are sick. But what do you do with someone who is dead? Suppose you bring your friend to the hospital. He's had a terrible fall and he fell on his head. And so you rush him into the ER and you're sitting there anxiously in the waiting room and then the doctor comes out and she says, I'm very sorry, but your friend is dead. What does that mean? It means his condition 
is hopeless. There's no coming back from this. It's the worst diagnosis possible, right? There's healthy, there's sick, and then there's dead. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins. No amount of education, there's no moral improvement plan, there's no technology or system that can undo this sentence of death. There is no way in ourselves to reverse this condition. Because what can the dead do? Nothing. And therefore the Bible says our only hope, our only hope, is we need someone on the outside to come and rescue us. We need supernatural grace to reach down and give us life. Now how does God do this? He does this in two parts and they're both essential. So that leads me to the second point. God gives us life by canceling the record of our sins. And it shows us that our death, first of all, is a legal status. So let's look at verse 14. In verse 14, um, Paul uses a very interesting word. He says the record of debt, it's actually a single word. And it's the Greek word, um, chirographon. And it comes from the world of business and finance. The chirographon was um, literally a document, uh, a certificate of your debts. It was a written record of all of the, of all of your debts. And you have to remember that in the ancient world, there was no way to discharge your debts. There were no bankruptcy laws, and so if your debts reached a certain amount they would arrest you and put you in prison. And if your family could not come up with the money, they would sell you into slavery so that you could work to pay it all off. And if your debts were so enormous that you could not possibly do that, it would be a life sentence. You would die as a slave. Now, on the one hand, this is incredibly frightening. Because the Bible says there is a detailed record of your life. Not just the big moments, but down to the, to the littlest incidents. Every private moment, every secret wicked thought you have ever had has all been written down. And that is your record. That is your chirographon. And the Bible says that this record condemns you. If you are in a court of law, the the verdict would be guilty without any doubt because the evidence is overwhelming against you. If this is a record of your debts, then the, the amount is so, so far beyond what you could possibly pay. A thousand lifetimes would not be enough and you would never be able to pay it back. Never. You would never break even. That's the bad news. But here is the good news. God so loved the world. God has so set his heart on you. That he takes this record of of our debts. And he cancels it. The Greek word there means to wipe clean. It literally means to plaster over a surface. Or over a tablet. So that there is no more writing left. So that it is a blank slate. 
The Bible says that God takes the record of our sins and he wipes it clean. He plasters over it and he forgives all our trespasses. It's a profound thing. How does God do it? Look at the end of verse 14. It says, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's a really interesting um, way to put it. And uh, it, Paul here is sort of mixing metaphors. Because he says the chirographon, right? This written record, this written document of your debts has been nailed to the cross. But if you think about it, it's not a record that was nailed. It was a person. Jesus Christ. And here we come to the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean that God made Christ to be sin? To be sin. It cannot mean that Jesus actually committed sins. It cannot mean that he was actually a wicked person. Because when you read the gospel accounts, is there ever a moment when you say to yourself, yeah, I could have done that better. That was questionable. No, when you read the gospel accounts, every word that Jesus spoke was perfect. Every deed, every act was perfect. This is what Paul means when he says he knew no sin. Jesus is the only truly righteous man who has ever lived. So then what does Paul mean? Paul means that the record of our sins was placed on Christ. So that at the heart of the gospel is an exchange. Our record is put on Jesus so that on the cross Jesus is treated like a criminal, like a debtor. And the weight of judgment comes crashing down on him. And then his record is put on us so that we receive his blessing and his righteousness. So that in the text when it says the record of debt was nailed to the cross, it means that Jesus Christ took our place. He took our punishment and the penalty of death fell on him. That is the gospel. But it is only the first part of the gospel. And this is where a lot of people stop. And they wonder why they're stuck. They wonder why the the Christian life is so anemic and weak. And why there is no power in their lives. Because they are missing the second part. What is the second part? This leads me to my last point. God makes us alive by defeating the power of sin. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So, uh, first of all, who are these rulers and authorities? Rulers and authorities is um, a favorite expression of Paul that he often uses in his letters to describe the cosmic powers of evil. So for example, um, Ephesians 6 verse 12, listen to this. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is talking about sin and evil as a power. This is really important to understand. And if you do not understand this, you will be so frustrated. You will be frustrated with yourself and with the Christian life. And you will want to give up. Because Christianity will make no sense to you at all. Because this is crucial. Listen to me. The Bible says that sin is not just what you do. But sin is a power over you. Sin is not just a set of choices that you make, that you want to do, that you're glad to do, but sin is also a compulsion that you don't want to do, that in fact you hate when you do it. I know that sounds really strange, but you see this all throughout the Bible. The classic example is Romans chapter 7. Let me read to you verses 14 through 17. I'm going to read to you from the uh, New Living Translation, which is a very uh, sort of contemporary English translation. I think it really brings out the meaning well. Listen to this. Paul writes, I don't understand myself at all. For I really want to do what is right. But I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. I know perfectly well that what I am doing is wrong. And my conscience shows that I agree that God's moral law is good. But I can't help myself. Because it is sin inside me that makes me do these evil things. The trouble is not with the law but with me, because I am sold into slavery with sin as my master. Now some of you are saying, well that sounds crazy, right? That doesn't make any sense at all, because I don't think of myself as powerless to do good. I think I can do good things. Listen, you're not listening to Paul, because what he's saying is that the more you try, the more you try to be a good person, the more you will become aware of your spiritual slavery. So, for example, think about the golden rule. Everyone agrees with the golden rule. Every religion, every philosophy has some version of the golden rule. The golden rule is, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Matthew 7.14 Everyone agrees, right? If people could just keep the golden rule, the world would be so much of a better place. Okay, then. So do it. I challenge you, for the rest of today, live by the golden rule. Just for one day. Try it. Remember, the golden rule is not just be nice to people. The golden rule is treat others as you would want to be treated. The golden rule therefore means that you must meet the needs of other people with all your strength, with all your creativity, with all of your intensity, and do it quickly, and do it with all joy. 
Right? The golden rule is be as excited and, and as enthusiastic for other people's success, for the happiness of other people, as you are for your own. The more you meditate on this, the more you try to do this, the more you will realize you cannot do it. You cannot do it even for an hour. You cannot do it. Why not? Because the human heart is deeply selfish. And this self-regard, this self-seeking and self-absorption is so deeply ingrained in us that we cannot stop. Even when you recognize the problem in yourself, you cannot command yourself to stop. And so the Bible says, sin is not just what you do. It is a power over you. It is this evil master that controls you to which you are enslaved. Jesus says in uh, John 8.34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Paul in Romans 7.14, we just looked at this, says, sin is my master and I am sold into its slavery. And so what is the answer? The gospel is not just that our sins have been forgiven. That is wonderful. That is foundational. The record of our sins has been canceled. Praise God. But the gospel is also that the power of sin has been defeated has been destroyed and you are now free from its dominion. Look again at verse 15. He he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I want to focus on this word triumph. Um, This word triumph, uh, the Greek word is actually referring to a very specific almost technical meaning. It's the Greek word thriambeo. What is the thriambeo? So in the ancient world, in the ancient world, um, suppose that your city was under attack and an enemy army was approaching. And then what would happen is that your king would gather together his forces and then he would go out and he would meet the enemy in battle. Now, it's really hard for us as modern people to understand this, right? Because we've never experienced... The United States has never been attacked for over 200 years, okay? But try to picture this in your mind, okay? Everything is riding on this battle. Because if your side loses, if your army and king is crushed, then the enemy is going to come and sack and pillage your city, and if somehow you can survive the massacre, you will be sold as a slave. You will lose everything. But if somehow your side prevails, then your king would return in victory. And I want you to try to imagine the emotions of this moment. You would feel just overwhelmed with relief and joy and thanksgiving, and then what would happen next 
is that there would be what is called a triumphal procession. This is where we get the word triumph. Okay, this is this is the triumbeo. Okay, what is the triumphal procession? All the residents of the city would line the streets, and there will be cheering and celebration. And then your conquering king would come riding back into the city on his chariot, and then his his、uh, lieutenants would be distributing all the booty, all the、uh, conquered treasure. Right, so literally money is raining down on you. And then at the head of the procession would be the enemy king who was captured. And he would be in chains, naked, his eyes gouged out, and then all the crowd would just be pouring on their hatred, right? Just、uh, jeering and mocking, and it would be this huge public spectacle because the enemy king would be op- would be subject to open shame. And then at the end of the procession, they would ceremoniously kill him. The most famous example of this is when,、um, after Julius Caesar conquered Gaul. He had a triumphal procession in Rome. The,、uh, he brought with him the king of the Gauls, Vercingetorix, who was dragged through the streets of Rome in chains. And at the end, they slit his throat. And the Roman people were like, <sighs> and then Julius Caesar distributed all the wealth of Gaul to the people. This was an extremely well-known and vivid experience in the ancient world. Everyone understood this. It was like this picture of total domination and total humiliation of the enemy. And it's hard for us as modern people to comprehend the grandeur and the glory of this. Now, listen to this: Paul has the audacity to take this powerful, evocative image, the Thriumbeo, okay? And then he applies it to Christ, defeating the cosmic powers of sin and evil. And the image, therefore, is that sin and evil are in chains, totally crushed, totally humiliated, and Jesus Christ is riding on his chariot in victory, in absolute supremacy. Some of you are saying, "That's amazing." <laughs> But when did it happen? <laughs> did I miss it in the story? <laughs> when was this scene in the Bible? And the answer is verse fourteen. At the end of verse fourteen, Paul tells us it happened on the cross. This is where Christianity is saying something that goes far beyond what any human being could have possibly conceived. Because in the ancient world, a Roman cross was pretty much the exact opposite of military victory. Because dying a terrible, shameful death on a Roman cross did not mean you won the battle. Like no one would say, "Oh, he won the battle." It meant you lost the battle. It meant you were captured, humiliated, tortured, and then slowly killed. In the most shameful way possible, and the genius of the gospel is that that cross was the victory of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus took our place. On the cross, 
He defeats the rulers and the authorities. And then he releases us from its captivity. So that we are free. We are free. I want you to know that if you are in Jesus Christ, the record of your sins has been canceled, and you are free from the power of sin. You are free from its bondage. And you are free henceforth to live unto Christ. That is the gospel. That is the full gospel. Some of you are saying, yes, but I don't feel free. If I am free, why do I still struggle with my sins? Why is sin still so present in my life? Here's the answer. I want you to imagine a man who was captured as an infant. And he's raised up as a slave. And all of his life, he serves this cruel, evil master who makes him do terrible, degrading things. But then one day, he's rescued and he's set free. But for the rest of his life, this man remembers his life as a slave. It's still a vivid experience for him. And all of his old habits and all of his old mindset remains so that he still acts like a slave. Now, how does he become free? The reality is that actually he's already free. His cruel master is dead. And he knows it. But it's not enough. It's not enough. He has to learn to be free. He has to practice his freedom. He has to learn new habits and new life skills. And when he does this every day, little by little... He will become free. I want you to know that it is not enough to simply know that you are saved. It's not enough. But the truth of Christ has to become a burning reality in your heart. And this is something that you cannot just only occasionally think about. But you have to be deeply moved by the love of Christ. The brilliance and the glory of it has to just overwhelm you so that it shapes your emotions, it directs your thoughts and your desires. And I want you to know that just doesn't happen by coming to church once a week. If that, I'm sorry. And here I want to get really practical. Because a lot of people do not understand how the Christian life works. My, um, my favorite book on parenting that I've ever read, I've, I've mentioned this before, is a book by Paul David Tripp called Parenting. It's not a very snazzy title. And, but it's a brilliant book. And in the book, Paul David Tripp says that parents have this very common fantasy that we are going to have these really great parenting moments. 
It's going to be like these hallmark moments where you're sitting down there with your kid. He's just pouring his heart out to you. And you are sharing wise counsel. And he's just drinking it in. And Paul David Tripp says, it just doesn't work like that. Because personal relationships don't work like that. He says, instead, you have to spend lots and lots of time with your children. You have to make them your priority. You have to carve out time with them out of your busy schedule. And he says that, A lot of what you do is just going to be these mundane, ordinary things. And it's not going to feel like anything special is going on. He says, but in the middle of that, in the middle of that, and it's going, the moments will be unplanned and unexpected. He says, in the middle of that, you are going to experience amazing moments of connection to your child. And he says, but it will only come if you lay the groundwork first. If you're investing the time and and the energy. And he says, you cannot do it on the cheap. You cannot say, you know, once a week, every Wednesday, from 7.45 to 8.15, I will sit down with my kid and we will have these amazing conversations. It just doesn't work. And as your child grows older, eventually he will say, who are you? I don't even know you. I want you to know, so it is with God. If you want a relationship with him, you have to spend time seeking him. You have to spend time every day reading his word, praying, You have to invest time in Christian fellowship and having spiritual conversations. And if you do all of these things, you're giving him your time, you're meditating, you're seeking, you're worshiping, praying to him. I want you to know that most of the time, it's going to feel rather mundane. It's not going to seem like anything special is going on. But if you persevere, I want you to know that in the middle of that, because you've laid the groundwork, you will have glimpses of his glory and his beauty. And it will overpower you. And you will be overwhelmed by his love. And in those moments, you will see him dying for you, loving you on the cross. And when you see him utterly giving himself to you, you will want to utterly give yourself back to him. And that is freedom. That is freedom. It is a lifelong process. There's no shortcuts, but you'll be free. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Almighty God, how can we neglect so great a salvation? Lord, we confess our neglect, our indifference, our disinterest. So many other things seem so much more important. And we devote our attention and time and our heart to these other pursuits. 
but they are fleeting. They are shifting sand. They are a broken cistern that can hold no water and it leaves us empty and dry. Oh Lord, waken our hearts. Help us to see your glory and your beauty. Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus defeating the powers of sin and and evil so that we are free. Help us to realize and practice that freedom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.